Welcome, everybody, to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by thehockeythinktank.com, a website for all players, parents, and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. What an episode we have for you guys here today. We have current National Team Development Program head coach for the U18, Seth Appert, coming on the podcast. Seth grew up in Minnesota. Uh, He ended up playing his college hockey at Ferris State University, Uh, made a name for himself as an assistant coach at the University of Denver, where he won two national championships. Uh, Following that, he became the head coach at RPI, where I actually coached against him for a couple years and actually played against him for a couple of years too. Uh, and now he is currently, like I said, the head coach of the USA NTDP. And uh, great conversation with Seth. But before we do get it over to him, let's bring on my partner in the podcast, the talent of the podcast, Jeff Lavecchio. Jeff, what's going on today? So if it's a beautiful, sunny, 80-degree day in St. Louis... I've already had at least 267 grams of protein today, and I'm ready to go. (laughs) Nice from all that uh, partying from the Blues, uh, clinching the uh, Stanley Cup berth or what? Yeah, what a big night. Everybody else is out there boozing. I'm crushing protein shakes. (laughs) (laughs) Of course you are. Or you were boozing and you had turkey in your pockets. Which one? <laughs> no, I was not boozing. However, um, I would like to invent some kind of alcohol that has a bunch of protein in it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Anybody out there who's an entrepreneur who knows about all that stuff, contact Jeff. He'll be your marketing call, guy. You could call it protein. <laughs> that would be unreal. All right. So changing the subject. Actually, no, not changing the subject. I want to ask you, man, like you grew up in St. Louis um, played for the St. Louis AAA Blues, still live in the city. You know, like, how cool is it, the fact that uh, your hometown team's made it to the Stanley Cup Finals? Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy. Um, it's really been really cool to see just the buzz around hockey in St. Louis. Like, everyone, <laughs> I've never seen people this happy about the Blues ever in my life. Uh, it's pretty crazy, and uh, I, I just think it's going to be huge for hockey for the next few years. It's probably going to be like that effect that that the Blackhawks had when they went on the, all those runs, and then the enrollment in hockey just like skyrocketed. Hopefully, that happens here in St. Louis, and with all the new rinks we have going in, um, the Blues' new rink and then Chesterfield's new rink, both going to be done in a couple months here. I think uh, it should just really help how many how many new kids we can get to play the game. Yeah, for sure. Is there anybody, I mean, we talked about Pat Maroon, you know him really well, um, but is there anybody else kind of like on the blues that you think is a pretty cool story or any kind of like storyline in general that you kind of know about being from St. Louis? That's pretty cool. No, I do not know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, uh, dude, I don't have time to watch hockey. Oh I watch the highlights. God, shut up. Um, I watch highlights and that's about it. Yeah, you know who the guy that I think is, first of all, Craig Berube, the coach. I mean, that's pretty cool, you know, taking over halfway through and and now they're in the cup finals, just no-nonsense kind of guy. But the other guy that I wanted to talk about was Ryan O'Reilly, right? Like, here's a guy... What a savage. Yeah, like, here's a guy that he got a lot of flack over the summer um, when he was still in Buffalo because he basically was honest with the media and was like, it's tough to come to the rink right now. Like, I can't find the passion to come, you know to the rink right now because it was such a disaster out there you know and then he gets to st louis and now he's you know 
I mean, arguably one of the best two-way centers in the game, uh, and he reestablished himself as one of the best two-way centers in the game because he kind of always had been, but it was such a disaster in Buffalo. So I think the whole thing that I wanted to ask you was like, you know, we talk a lot about what we do, right, in terms of like we're in charge of our own destiny. And, you know, if we work hard enough, we can get to certain spots. But how much of it is like, hey, like just a different environment for a guy like Ryan O'Reilly? You know, like he was in Buffalo. He's still the same player. He has the same talent, but his drive wasn't as big. And now it's huge, huge now that he's in St. Louis. He's leading the team. So like how much of it is our surroundings versus how much of it is our inner drive, you know? Well, I mean, your surroundings are going to affect how much motivation you have, you know, like, I mean, it doesn't matter what your job is, what your career is, school situations, whatever. If you're going into a hostile situation where you don't feel comfortable being yourself and you're not excited and you're not happy, you're just naturally, you're not going to perform as well. That's why you and I both believe in how important psychology is in coaching and mentorship. It's massive. And I mean, if you can help motivate and help people find their passion and have people be having fun while they're getting better, they're going to get way more out of it. I mean, there's study after study after study that says this stuff. I don't know them, but I'm sure you do, Mr. (laughs) Cornell. You know, I mean, it's, it's just obvious. You get people excited to do something, they're going to do it better, more efficient, more effectively. Yeah. Well, the one study that I think was really big was the Google study. I think, was it called the Aristotle study? I can't remember, but you know, they work a lot in teams at Google. So they did this big, huge longitudinal study on kind of like which teams have worked the best at, uh, you know, at the company. And so they, you know, they did a bunch of different questionnaires. They looked at productivity, um, and a lot of different things. And they felt, and they found that one of the things that was actually huge for the teams that, um, not only produced the most, but also had like kind of like the most fun doing it, um, or like wanted to be a part of that team was just social safety. You know, they felt socially safe to kind of be themselves, socially safe to take risks. When you feel like you're a part of something and you feel safe to kind of be yourself, um, a- again, it, it leads to again probably more passion to what you're doing, more buy into what you're doing, more effort into what you're doing um, because you're allowed to be yourself. And we talk a lot about that on this podcast for sure. Yeah, I feel like I've talked about that a couple times. Um, you know, in the American League, I felt like I personally um, was never myself. I was kind of just always like, all right, I got to be perfect. I have to be perfect for them to call me up. I have to do everything right. Like I I have to be kind of more like a robot. And that didn't really fulfill me. You know, like I, I like to have fun. I like to talk a lot. I like to get the boys going. And I was kind of just like in this like trance, like zone, like I have to be the perfect guy to be able to be called up to the show. And then, you know, when I decided to go over to Europe, I was like, all right, like I've had enough kind of being a robot. I was just fed up with it. And I was like, I'm going to be myself. I had so much more fun. I scored so many more goals. Obviously the leagues that I played in weren't all as good as the American league, but I mean, the Austria's the Ebel is one of the best leagues in the world. And I mean, it's very North American and it's hard to score there. You know, I was leading the league in goals one year and it was all because I was having fun. I was excited to be in the rink. I was excited to be in front of the fans. Like everything just like was a better environment for me. And I was myself. Like you just said, I felt like, I don't know what you said, socially safe or whatever, yeah, but social like safety. Th- social, it sounds like such a weird, like class you had taken like middle school, but anyways, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I felt social safety. I felt okay being myself and I was way more successful and our team was really successful because I felt like I was able to help the boys push themselves even more. 
Yeah, I mean, it makes so much sense. I had a couple times in my career where it was very, very similar. I think when I became captain in Cornell, um, that really affected me. You know, you feel like you kind of be need to be this certain caricature to, to do a good job for the team, you know? And so you, yeah. you do certain things that are outside of who you are. Um, you know, for me, that was kind of like yelling at guys or whatever, holding guys accountable. And it's like, just looking back at it now, I was like, that's just like so unauthentic and just not right. And then even when I became a coach, it was the same thing. You know, you feel like you need to be hard on guys in a certain way. And, you know, it's just, uh, again, it's unauthentic and you can lose some respect. I think when you, when you act a certain way like that, for sure. Um, but yeah, it's, again, we've talked about it before. Authenticity, you know, is, is such an important thing. And then putting people in an environment where they feel like they can be themselves and they can be authentic. It, it just, it leads to so much more, um, camaraderie. It leads to so much more diversity. It leads, leads to so much more fun because everybody just kind of is happy being themselves. Totally. And within a team, like, think about it. If, if you have everybody trying to be that perfect guy, that robot, whatever, you're missing some, some pieces to a puzzle. Like you want guys to be themselves and totally express themselves how they want so that they can be creative and do those things. Like what if everybody's trying to be a robot? Now you lost your creativity. Now your power play sucks because you don't have guys like reading the play. They're just thinking more like robotically, you know? So like as a coach and as a parent, like you want to encourage that, that individuality within a team. It's, 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 it's a skill learning how to be yourself but within the confines of a team so you're all going the same way but you're all yourselves while doing it yeah yeah for sure the golden state warriors i think do it the best and steve kerr's is unbelievable you hear him you know talk about how they've developed their chemistry within the team and they talk a lot about that they got a lot of different personalities but he's able to get them to allow them to be themselves but also focus on the things that are we things and not necessarily me things and yeah it's an art that's why it's so cool that Coaching is an art, man. It's not a science. You got to deal when you got to deal with people. It's never scientific. <laughs> Are you talking about the NBA? Is that is that gold jacket, green jacket? <laughs> Who gives a shit? Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I have I have actually heard how like unreal Steve Kerr is. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, one guy who is unauthentically unapolog or not unauthentically, but unapologetic. Oh my goodness, Topher unapologetically yep. himself is Seth Appert. Uh, the guy wow, who, nice smooth transition. Hey, yeah, well, no, there. That was, there was nothing smooth about that. I, I oh. mis, mispronounced the word about four times before I got it out. <laughs> you, have, you have clearly not slid into somebody's DMs in a minute. That's not smooth, all right? <laughs> uh, but he is unapologetically himself. Great guy, great coach. And uh, yeah, like, what did you think of the conversation with him? It was really cool. You know, I mean, I've been a huge fan. I mean, obviously everyone is a huge fan of uh, probably everyone is with all the guys they're churning out the NTDP and what they're doing. And I've absolutely loved that model. It's been a developmental model since, you know, we knew what it was when we were kids turning 16, 17 and we'd see our buddies go in there boys and they would be churned out men two years later. Like they literally were not boys anymore. And I've been like such a fan of what they've been able to do with these kids, both mentally and physically. Physically, it's skill-wise, developmentally, hockey-wise, everything. Because, you know, St. Louis has had a bunch of kids um, go through their program. And I personally train uh, one of them, Joseph Wall. And it is just 
it was crazy to like see all these kids, you know, Luke Cunning and all these kids from St. Louis go in there, boys, and they just come out like ready to play real man's hockey. And they're obviously doing things correct. You know, they don't care if they win or lose that first year. All they care about is are the boys developing every day after day after day. And then look what happens. They all wind up being first rounders. Like it's not an accident, people. Long-term development is what matters if you're looking to make yourself a better hockey player down the road. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, the one thing that I feel like is tough for NTDP coaches and um, we've talked about this before, like just sitting around having a couple beers with with uh, coaches. Like, imagine getting some of the top fifteen year olds in the country and the kinds of personalities that come along with that, right? And there's no pecking order at the NTDP, right? Like, there's no senior that shows the freshman how to do things. You know, there's no kind of like mentorship. Like, you come in and you as a seventeen and you see the eighteens and how kind of they do things, but there's nobody within that locker room that kind of polices it or that kind of like, um, you know, just like shows people the way. So it's it's incredible how they can form a team and form a bond without having that kind of like mentorship opportunity. You know what I mean? It's interesting. Yeah. And I didn't even think about that until Seth brought that up. That had never even crossed my mind. And then I was like, wow, like I thought back to my junior experience and I was a fish out of water (laughs) if I, and until, you know, the veterans come in and they kind of take care of you and, you know, the coach pee slaps you and he, you know, the veterans bring you back up and be like, don't worry. I got that when I was a rookie too. Like you're going to get through this. You're going to get better. Just like all these different situations that come in, like you're nervous. You don't know what to do here or there or whatever, but the veterans have been through it. Some of them one year, some of them two years, some of them three years. And these kids don't have that. So that's pretty intense and really cool. They can form that, that strong of a bond without that veteran presence in the locker room. Yeah, definitely. And the other thing that was interesting, what he said, and this is a little bit less towards the NTDP, more when he was coaching in college. Um, You know, everybody always talks about how coaching is relationship-based, right? And we talked a little bit about how, like, who kind of backs that up or how you back that up? Like, what are things to do to actually develop relationships like that? And it was interesting to hear him talk about how, um, you know, he never judged his coaching by like wins and losses and he coached he he judged how he coached based on how many of the guys he coached invited him to their weddings you know so when it talks about like relationships and how important relationships were I just thought that was a really interesting way to 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 kind of frame it because it's true I mean like if you develop a relationship with a kid that much where he wants to you know have you as a part of one of the biggest moments of their lives getting married I mean that's that's pretty cool yeah, I thought that was unbelievable. Never had thought about that before, and I was like, "Wow, that is very cool." And then it made me think, like, about my my own personal like training company. And a kid, a kid, literally last week was like, "Yeah, well, you better like do so some if I invite you to my wedding." And I was like, in my head, I remember thinking when he said that, like, "Oh, wow, like." That'd be really cool if any of you ever invited me to your weddings, like down the road, you know, whether you are pros still work with me or you stopped working with me after college or after juniors or whatever. I was like, wow, that's really cool. And then like two days later, Seth said that. And I was like, man, that is really true. Like you, you obviously form a serious bond if you're getting those invites. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, it was a, it was a great conversation. Uh, he's a real likable guy, uh, again, unapologetically himself. That's what he's known for. Um, but, uh, I think we've talked here enough. So, uh, why don't we let you get to the man himself? So without further ado, let's head in on over to Seth Appert. 
We are so excited to have on this episode of the Hockey Think Tank podcast, the head coach of the National Team Development Program, Seth Appert. Seth, how are we doing today? I'm good, Topher. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming. Thanks for coming, and uh, really excited to talk to you. You've had a lot of great stops along the way in uh, your hockey career and, and your hockey coaching career as well, but uh, one of bring it way, way back. Um, you know, you grew up in Minnesota and, uh, you know, we've had quite a few Minnesota people on talking about how great Minnesota hockey is and growing up playing on the ponds and stuff like that. So take us back a little bit and talk to us about how you got started in the game and, and how you fell in love with it up in Minnesota. Yeah. Well, like, like most families in Minnesota, you usually play hockey. Um, and just really fortunate to grow up there. I think that, uh, there's a lot of great hockey uh, country places in our country, but from a from a youth hockey perspective, uh, it's hard to beat Minnesota, where where you get to play for your hometown, you get to go watch your hometown high school team play, and and dream of playing for them someday, and trying to trying to make it to the state tournament and those things. And so um, it's a it's a real special place to grow up. I got to play, you know, six years of travel hockey for my hometown with my buddies that I grew up with that I played baseball and football with. And, uh, that's, uh, you know, those are guys that some of them I'm still friends with to this day. And then you get to play high school together afterwards. So, you know, it's a, it's a real unique, uh, hockey culture in Minnesota. Um, I grew up more in a baseball family. Um, uh, my, my, my dad coached us in baseball. My, my little brother and my older brother were really good baseball players, uh, my little brother was a uh, two-time uh, Big Ten Player of the Year at Minnesota. Oh wow! Um, so we grew up more baseball family, but uh, hockey uh, hockey became my first love uh, through my experiences, and probably more than anything, uh, I had great youth coaches. Uh, and and my first travel youth coach was was Al Plotichuk. Um and I stay in touch with him to this day. And he coached me at nine and ten, and then he coached me again in high school. Uh, and, and he really helped me fall in love with the sport, uh, taught me the culture of the sport, taught me you know, why it's such a special sport to play. And, uh, you know, I, I'm still thankful to this day that, uh, that a guy like Al Palatichuk was coaching me when I was so young. That's awesome. And like, we're going to skip a few things here. We'll get back to, to your playing career in a little bit, but I wanted to ask you, cause I got the chance to talk to some of the guys that played for you and quite a few of the guys that, that coached with you. And is that something that you took with you on your coaching journey? Because you talk about Al in a way where, you know, you still keep in touch with him. You had this great relationship. You know, I would argue that a lot of your players and, and a lot of the guys that coach with you would say the same thing. So was that a lesson that you learned um, from him as your coach in Minnesota growing up? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that that's something that's, uh, it's, it's why I loved coaching in college. It's why I love being uh, here at the program um, is, is having the opportunity to create relationships with, with young men, uh, and, and try to help impact their life in a positive manner in some way. Uh, that way might be having a good relationship with them and being there for them. Uh, that might be by driving them extremely hard to, to, to understand how good they could be as a player. Um, and I always felt in college, especially it's a little different here with how young they are. Uh, but I did feel in college that, that we did our job as a coaching staff if we got invited to their weddings uh, later on in their life. Uh, and, and if we didn't, uh, then, then we probably didn't do a good enough job or, or the combination of, of the players' commitment and our commitment together uh, to each other uh, wasn't high enough. So 
those are lessons I learned. Um, yeah, like I said, from my, my coaches, um, and I learned that from Bob Daniels at Ferris State, uh, who I was lucky enough to play for and have a relationship with him to this day. And um, that's something I strive for when I coach is, is uh, it doesn't mean I'm easy on them, uh, but you want them to know that regardless of how hard you're being on them, that you care about them as a person. That's really cool. I absolutely love that. That's one of the coolest things I've heard from a, a, an older um a guy coaching an older level. Like that's, <laughs> that's everything that I believe in. Very cool. It's all about relationships. Yeah, for sure. It is. And, and if players, if players know that you care about them, you can push them really hard. And that doesn't mean that, that I was perfect. I I've made tons of mistakes and there's been certain teams along the way and individuals along the way that I haven't coached the right way. Um, and you'll, and you try to learn from those. Um, um, so, so by no means does it mean it's, it's always right or that I've always been right. I've made a ton of, uh, mistakes along the path, but, but, but I try to try to circle back to that, to that mindset, uh, you know, every time, uh, you hit patches of adversity. Well, you can just, you can push kids harder at guys, hard at kids, guys, anyone. Like if I know a coach, if I, or I believe a coach truly cares about me and my best interests, and always is rooting for me. If they're going to be hard on me, they could be screaming in my face. But if I know like deep down that they care about me, they're going to get more out of me. And if they yell at me or they're mad at me because I messed up or they're trying to prove a point, I'm not going to take it as a personal attack. I'm going to take it as, wow, this guy cares so much. He's going to put all this energy into yelling or whatever at me because he cares not because like he just cares about himself and cares about winning and all those things totally makes sense. Yeah. It, it, there's no doubt. And it's hard at times, right? Cause, cause there's a balance to it and you, and you have to be demanding at times. And, and there's, they listen, there's times that I was, that I, in my heart, I was like, man, I, I don't think Bob Daniels likes me. You know, why am I, how come I'm not playing more? Oh, look at how hard I work. And all those things you go through, every player goes through, right? Um, and, and little did I know he cared about me so much that he offered me a spot in his coaching staff after. But, but as a player, it's so hard sometimes to, that, to view yourself, your worth in the coach's eyes as anything more than playing time. And and it's hard. And as a coach, you, you need to try to drive that relationship. Uh, so they understand, uh, their worth to the team, their worth to the, the, the organization or the university, or in our case, our country, um, and their worth to you as a person. Um, and that, that's tricky. Cause like I said, as, as a player, you, you, a lot of times put your worth in the coach's eyes, uh, just simply based on playing time. Yeah, for sure. Well, let me ask you this, because I feel like as coaches, you know, if we ask, you know, a hundred coaches at our level, kind of why they do it, I would say 95 or even maybe a hundred percent of them would say, you know, you do it to make an impact and it's all about the relationships. I'm not so sure that us coaches, and I'll put myself in there included, I think all of us probably would. I don't know if we actually do the work that kind of backs that talk up. I think we all mean well. I don't, but it's really, really hard. It takes a lot of work to really, truly show somebody that you care. That's something that you obviously are very good at talking to coaches that you worked with, talking to players that you, that have played for you. You know, what are maybe some tangible things that you used to do to help develop those kinds of relationships and, and really kind of get those kids to know that you care as well? 
Well, well, I'll start with this. I, I've failed at it as well. Like there's, there's <laughs> we players all have. That, have <laughs> that probably there's players that have played for me that probably don't feel that way, right? <laughs> I mean, so um, we're oh, by no means in my perfect and creating relationships, um, but. Um, I, I, I think number one, it, it is my personality. I am a people person. Uh, I do genuinely care about people. Um, my, my mom was a teacher. Um, after she retired from teaching, she worked with, uh, underprivileged and disadvantaged kids. Um, and, and so, you know, I think that, that, that exists in my DNA. I think that's a, that's a starting point. Um, and then I think that, you know, like anything in building relationships, it's time, um, you know, and, and are you just, are you just recruiting a player if you're a college coach or are you investing in their life? Are you, are you only talking to them about why they should come play for your school? Or are you talking to them about life? Um, after they're committed to you, uh, do you forget about them and go on to the next 10 recruits or do you continue to try to help in their development, uh, on their path before they come to your school? Um, those are things that, that I certainly tried to do, um, along the way. And then, and then once they're with you, um, you, you know, you got to put your money where your mouth is and you have to, you can't only talk to them about hockey. If, if it's only about hockey, um, then you're showing them in your actions that it's only about hockey. And if you're talking to them about their family or about their life or about academics, um, if you if you notice that something's wrong with them and you ask them, is everything okay at home? Um, if, if you allow them to miss something sometimes because they have a family wedding or I think it's just all those things over accumulation that you make sure of time that you make sure that your, your actions are backing up your words that you're going to try to treat this like a family. Um, and, and players are smart, man, right? They know when it's real and they know when, someone's just giving them lip service to try to get them to play the way they want them to play. Um, and I think over time, you know, you realize that. Absolutely. Well, I want to circle back a little bit now because uh, you mentioned that there were some times that uh, your coach at Ferris State, Bob Daniels, didn't like you. And uh, interestingly enough, I actually had lunch with uh, Jamie Russell today, who uh, you know very well. You played for him as an assistant coach at Ferris State. And uh, he was telling me a funny story about uh, some time that you might have spent 10 minutes in the box at, uh, at the University of Michigan. <laughs> so if you can, maybe just enlighten our listeners a little bit about what happened at uh, at Yost that night. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that's a good one. Well, first of all, yeah, Jamie, uh, I was real fortunate, not just Bob Daniels. I had, I had Jamie Russell, I had Tom Rudrud, I had Mark Kaufman, I had Drew Famulak. They were all great assistants and I have relationships with all of them. Um, so that was an interesting one. It was my, my junior year. Um, me and Blash were, were goalie partners. He had taken over the, the, the number one job at that point of the season. It was late in my junior year. Um, and, uh, and he had like a tweaked hip or something was, was up with him. Um, and so I was starting at Yost that night and, and in those days, not that they're not now, but they were a real wagon, uh, back in the mid nineties. I mean, it was Blash and I like to kid ourselves with that, that nobody high fived in Yost arena more than he and I did because one of us was getting pulled every time we started. So <laughs> And you're passing each other on the way to the bench saying, Hey, good luck, buddy. They really got it rolling tonight. You know? Um, so, I mean, they had Morrison and Wiseman and McCult and I mean, just all these guys. Um, so 
I was playing pretty good um, that night. The game was close. I think it was one to one at the time uh, in the second. And uh, and I remember them coming down on a three on two line rush, and I step out. I was way too aggressive. I probably uh, played a little. I I played in the '90s, but I played like a goalie in the '80s, so I was behind my time, not ahead of my time. Um, Jamie so said you out, were a linebacker. He called you a linebacker as a goalie. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair assessment. I think I was an energy forward that somehow ended up in goal. <laughs> you know, I mean that, that that's that's just who that's how I was wired. So I was probably in my mind I was only two feet above the crease. I'm sure I was probably seven feet above the crease at this point. And Mike Knubel, who made the drop pass, just steamrolled me. And, and as you guys know, Knubel's a big dude. So I get leveled by him. I'm laying in the corner basically because we slide so far. And and I look up and I'm shaking the cobwebs out. And I'm assuming they're – and I hear the crowd going nuts. And I look to the ref. I'm assuming that they're going to wave it off or call no goal or, or signal a penalty. And he's he's pointing Petrowski, um, who, by the way, is a Ferris alum, which is funny. Um <laughs> He's pointing at the goal, and uh, I kind of lost it, which is which is unusual because I was calm in that blast, like the yip at the refs a lot, and and I didn't talk to the refs, or if I did, it was all a good banter, um, and it it just lost it, and I chased him around the rink a little bit, and I may have uh, told him what I think uh, of him or how I think he favors uh, Red Berenson's teams. Um, <laughs> And then he rings me up for the 10. And so now the place is going bananas. And, and now it's only two to one. So I'm trying to calm down now. And I'm trying to get my wits about me. And I'm taking deep breaths. I'm going back to the crease. And I'm like, yeah, I got I to gotta, I gotta get control of this thing here. And all of a sudden the linesman comes down to me. And he's like, apps, uh, let's go. And I said, uh, what, what do you mean? He's like, you've got to serve your 10. I say, what? I, my player's got to serve my penalties. That's the beauty of being a goalie. Um, and uh, nope, so they parade me to the penalty box. So that was, uh, that was something for sure. And, uh, and Blash had to go in and play hurt after that, didn't he, for like 10 minutes while you were in there? Blash went in, and that's the crazy thing. So Blash goes in because he had the hurt hip, though. So he goes in, then we start the next period with him in the net. So I got to come out of the the, the player, the, the, the tunnel and go to the penalty box as a goalie. <laughs> my players, are, my teammates are across the bench laughing. They're, you know, arses off at me. Um, Blast goes in for like the last three, four minutes. The first whistle after the 10 minutes, I go out, I high five Blash. Blash goes right up the tunnel to get treatment on his hips so he could be ready to play the next night. And it was like a, a three card money game. Um, Needless to say, we didn't win it. I think I proceeded to give up like three of the next four shots because I was pretty rattled at that point. <laughs> um, the funny thing is, is uh, when I was at Denver, I met Brian Greasy, the quarterback, uh, through a mutual friend, and we were out having a couple beers one night, and he talked about how he was a big hockey fan. He went to the games all the time. And, uh, and then he, he asked where I played. I told him, he goes, I saw a fair state goalie get served a penalty one night. No I was like, way. well, that's me. So that's, uh, I wasn't good enough to, to stop the puck well, so I got to have a claim to fame somewhere else. I love that. That's so funny. Well, what was it like 
playing for Bob Daniels because I've gotten to to meet him a couple different times, gotten to talk to him a couple different times. One of the most respected guys in the game um, has obviously been at Ferris forever now. Um, you know, what was it like to play for him, and and uh, how much did you learn from him and take from him uh, as a coach now? Yeah, I take a ton from him. Um, you know, he was a rookie head coach, so we were his first class. So our class is still close with him to this day. Um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, our class loved being Bulldogs. And I think that was something that was important to him is, is, uh, I don't know if there's been anybody in college hockey that's done a better job of fostering a family culture in the program, like fair state guys, uh, and, and they don't have as many amenities and, and, and so they, they have a great setup now, a new locker room and all that stuff, but, but they don't have some of the frills that some of the other programs do. But when you talk to Ferris guys, 90% of them loved their time there, uh, love each other. We'll do anything for other Bulldogs. Even if, even if we didn't ever play together, when I get a call from a Ferris state hockey player, I don't care if I played with them, if I know them or not, I'll do everything I can to help them. Um, and that's all been then fostered and created by Bob and Drew um, and Mark Kaufman, how long those guys have been there and that they recruit good people. And then, and then they care about them. Um, like I said, he, he, he could have walked away from me. I was a, I was an average goalie. Um, I was done by four years and, um, he could have never thought anything more of me. And, and he saw something in me as a coach and he wanted me to stay around, uh, to be on the coaching staff as a student assistant, my fifth year. And, you know, that just shows, that he, that he knows his players. He did the same thing for Blash, uh, that he knows who they are as people and what their strengths are and what their value is even outside of, of uh, statistics. And um, so I, I've learned a ton from him about hockey and how to run a program the right way, uh, but more, more as a person and how you treat people. Yeah, that's awesome, and and that's what he's known for certainly in in the college coaching uh, community is uh, you know just being just an unbelievable human being and and um, you know you you take that job as a graduate assistant and and after that you got your um, full time gig at the University of Denver uh, with Coach Guazdecki and and one of the things that I wanted to ask you we had Benny Sire on here uh, and actually Benny and both of our wives just to kind of give a little bit of a window into what the culture of being an assistant coach is like in college. Um, but got the chance to talk to Steve Killer Miller here before you came on, and uh, you know it was it was awesome to to text with him and just hearing him reminisce about you know your guys's coaching culture as a family um, and how much teamwork went into what you two guys did. And uh, we had Staz on the episode uh, a couple weeks ago, and he talked about how you know you took him and walked him up to the bus, <laughs> and so none of the other schools can talk to him. But then uh, you know, but Killer he. Was was like yeah but I was actually running running interference with all the other coaches that were there too so you guys tag teamed it but you know talk to us a little bit about your time at, at Denver as an assistant you won two national championships there and specifically how you created that kind of bond within the coaching staff that allowed you guys to be so good well first of all I think you, you know you got to start with George uh, so Guaz is uh, he's a special coach he's a special human being he won a national championship as a player he won a national championship as a division three head coach. He won a national championship as a assistant coach in division one. He won a CCHA championship when Miami barely was a division one program. 
and then he won two national championships at, at Denver. Uh, and then when he was an assistant coach in the NHL, he played in, in the Stanley Cup Finals. Nothing. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he's, uh, he's an unreal leader and an unreal runner of a program. Um, and and what, what Guaz was fantastic at many things, but, but um, he really trusted Steve and I to do our jobs. And, and he was demanding of us, um, but, but really respectful, gave us, uh, especially as time went on, gave us wide berth uh, to have major say in the program, um, and, and uh, not only in recruiting, but, but in coaching. And, and I just have so much appreciation for that. And I think some of it is, is the time in your life. You know, like right now, it's, it's, it's harder. Like, uh, you know, Nick Four is my associate head coach. Jared Nightgill is my assistant. We're tight. We spend a ton of time together. But, you know, I've got two daughters that are playing youth sports, and Forzy's got three kids, and they're playing sports. And, you know, and so that's, it's harder. So at the time we were all together, uh, George was further along in his family life, but, but Killer and I weren't. You know, Killer had kids that were just being born. We didn't have any kids yet. So you're, you're nine years together. Uh, that's a long time, uh, for a, for a threesome to be together. Um, and, and, and it wasn't always easy. Denver wasn't rolling when George got there, there, my first year there, I think we were like 11 and 27. Um, and so you're, you're going through the, that battle of trying to turn a pretty good program into an elite program. Um, and you just the amount of time and investment you make in each other um, on the road, recruiting and, and coaching and going through adversity. I believe that going through adversity uh, tightens you uh, either it'll break you apart or, or tighten you together. And I believe that, you know, in life on teams, in your marriage, all those things. Um, and so we got to go through good times and bad times. We got to go through our families growing up together. Uh, I'm the godfather of, of one of killer's children uh, our wives, are, our tight friends, um, you know, we're the, the six of us, uh, George and myself and killer and our wives are, are still close to this day. And, uh, you know, when, when I was back in town coaching against Denver a while back and George was in the NHL, I, I met with his daughter. I got together with, uh, uh, Adrian Gwazdecki for, for lunch. I mean, that's just, that's just the way it was. We were all a family. We were all in it together. Um, and we are fighting every day to try to make Denver a great program again. And um, our wives would laugh that Killer and I'd spend 12 hours together at the office, and then we'd talk seven times that night. <laughs> and they're like, what else could you possibly have to say to each other? But, you know, like you, something comes up or you want to call about a recruit or whatever it is. So um, it, was, it was a real special time in my career, but, but even more importantly, a special time in, in the lives uh, of our three families. Yeah, that's really cool. And and the other thing, um, too, is like you each kind of had different personalities and different roles with how you dealt with players, too, right? Like I think that's another thing that was really special about your guys' staff is, you know, you two were so different that you could, you know, handle players differently. And, you know, sometimes, you know, one of the players could have needed a little bit of you and sometimes they could have needed a little bit of killer. Maybe same thing in the recruiting, you know, maybe sometimes they need a little bit more finesse, you know, Seth's got some finesse and sometimes they needed killer to come right in the front door. So talk a little bit about how, like how just, you know, 
complementing each other is such an important thing on the staff because we all have strengths, we all have weaknesses, and it seemed like your guys' staff there, you guys just kind of fit really, really well with your personalities. Yeah, I think that's a, Tover, you hit on it dead on. That, that's a great point because it's not always about getting three really good coaches together. Um, it's about three coaches that can complement each other. So I think first is, is Guaz still to this day. I, I don't know if I've ever seen anybody run a program uh, as the way Guaz does. It, it, no, nobody I've seen be better at running a program. And, and there's a lot of great coaches, and Guad's a great coach. But from running a program and building a program and uh, all the little intricacies that it required, Guaz was A+. Plus. Um, so you had that. He was kind of the CEO. Uh, he's, he's pretty anal. He's, he's pretty organized. Uh, and, and that's kind of the way he was, and he was kind of the CEO. Um, and then, you know, Killer and I would be more his, uh, you know, in-the-trenches-on-the-ground guys. And, uh, both in the recruiting standpoint and also in a coaching standpoint. And we're the relationship guys. And, yeah, Gu- Killer and I couldn't be more different. Uh, and that's the beauty of him being one of my best friends. <laughs> and that, that just, we couldn't be more different. Um, and, and he's almost uh, – he's certainly established himself. I, I believe he's the best assistant coach in college hockey and one of the best ever. Yeah. Um, you know, now I'm biased, but but I think his ba- his track record and his national championships uh, back that up. I mean, look what he did at Denver, look what he did at Miami, look what he did at Providence, look what he did at Air Force, look what he's done at Ohio State. Every right? time, so, yeah, every uh, time that I hear his name, I think of that song. I couldn't even tell you who sings it, but it's that song. It's like. All he does is win, 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 no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that's T. He does. I mean, oh, he, he look gotcha. what he look. Why is he on the world junior staff for four years in a row? He is killer. Is a bit of a of a mad scientist. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, right. I mean, he, he's got the glasses, and and you know, he's he's quirky in his personality, um, but he's a hockey genius. Yeah, he really is. He's yeah. a hockey genius. He and. Uh, and I learned so much from him about recruiting, uh, about coaching. Uh, we'd argue all the time. Uh, you know, he, he's one of those guys you can, you can argue, you can laugh, you can, you know, yuck it up. I mean, every day for nine years was a complete adventure with him. Um, and, and, uh, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, but, you know, you always knew. He's as hard on his sleeve. Um, you know where you stand with with Killer, and uh, I was really fortunate uh, to to get to work with those guys for nine years. That's really Very cool. cool. Yeah, that's really cool. And uh, you know, you went there, you know, had a lot of success, won two national championships, uh, and then you got your first head coaching job as um, you know as a head coach at RPI. And uh, this is something that I always kind of thought about because my goal and my dream was to, to be a head coach at Division One level for a long time. And um, I always wondered because people always say you don't know until you got to wear the shoes. You know, so as an assistant coach, you're around the head coach all the time and, you know, you see what he does and all that kind of stuff. But, like, when you actually got that title, like, what was that like? What did you learn? And, and uh, what kind of hit you square in the eyes? Like, holy crap, this is a lot different than when I was an assistant. Yeah, well, first of all, it's, it's, real, it's very lonely. You know, it's just, it's way more lonely being a head coach than it is being an assistant. You know, you're, 
you, you, you don't have that other assistant to, to kind of be buddies with. And my staff at RPI, we are close. We're all close, but it's still, you know, the assistants go on the road recruiting together. The head coach tries to get out as much as he can, but it's hard. Um, you know, so, so it's way more lonely. Um, I was all in everywhere I've ever been. Like I'm, that's the way I'm wired. So, but, but man, like the, the amount of sleepless nights and waking up in night sweats, um, increased dramatically when you're the head coach at RPI versus being the assistant coach. Cause as an assistant coach, you're, you're, you, you, yeah, at the end of the day, you're responsible to, to give the head coach the information that he needs to help him recruit players, to argue with him, to push him. But at the end of the day, it's going to be his decision. And then you get on board with it as an assistant, as a head, at the end of the day, it's your decision. And, it, and it's, and it's, it's your butt on the line a little bit. Right. So, um, you know, and some of the other stuff away from the rink weighs on you more as a head coach. Um, when, if guys are struggling in school or if they get in any trouble or those things, um, make it a way more lonely position. And, uh, um, I was ready to run a program because of Guaz. Like, so Guaz just taught you how to run a program. So I felt comfortable going in there and how to conduct our program and the fundraising, the alumni relations and, and how to get our players to act and all those things. Um, uh, but, but the challenges it presents, it's a lonely operation. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't able to hire assistants until like July one. So I think I was at RPI for, you know, May, June, two months, at least maybe two and a half, three months with, with just me and our equipment manager, Dana McGuane. Unfortunately, Dana McGuane one of the best in the world. Uh, and, and so we got to spend a lot of time together trying to get that, the, get things going in the right direction. But, um, I would say that's the biggest thing that hits you. It's just, it's more lonely. Um, you, you got more things pulling at you that aren't hockey related, um, that, that take you away from the, the the camaraderie of coaching. Wow, interesting. Well, let me ask you this because you mentioned Dana, and uh, Dana is he's an unreal guy. Like I don't know how many like coaches know of the other team's equipment manager, but I would imagine pretty much every coach in the ECAC knows Dana. Um, how much did you, as a head coach, or even at Denver as an assistant coach, and now coaching at TDP, like how much do you go to your let's say? equipment managers or your trainers or some of the other support staff that you have to give input on, you know, the day to day and certain things that are going on, maybe even with players that maybe, you know, maybe they talk to the equipment manager uh, or maybe they talk to somebody that can give you some more input. How much do you utilize them in your relationship building? All the time, all the time. Um, like, you know, we go back to the Denver staff, um, that extended past the coaching staff. That was our, David Tenzer, our director of hockey ops. That was our equipment manager, Lee Gressif. That was our trainer, Eric Rasmussen. I mean, that was our, our uh, director of marketing, Dave Madsen. Like, it was uh, all in together. Like, people that 15, 20 years later, we still have relationships with. Um, and you use all of those people uh, to, to get a feel for, for things. And so um, I was very fortunate um, to have Dana at RPI. Uh, he's one of the best in the business. He's won a Stanley Cup as an equipment manager at New Jersey, and he's just a great human being and a great father and husband. And, and uh, to have him to lean on uh, was fantastic, especially those, those early lean years. And, and 
Um, so I think that those guys have a great pulse and feel, and I have that here. Uh, you know, I have Brock Bradley and, and Dennis McDonald, and uh, you know, I think that if you're going to win together, you're, you better fight together and you better be close with each other as a staff. And that ex- expands past the coaching staff. And so um, I want those guys to feel they have a vested interest in the program and in the success of our program uh, and our team. And, and if you don't go talk to them and give them input on uh, ask their opinion on players or on attitudes, uh, then, uh, then I don't think you're backing that up. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, before the world championships last year in Russia, uh, I had our equipment manager who's been here for, I think 18 years. He's seen a lot, right. And, and he's seen the great and the struggles and all of it. And I had, I, the, the big meeting the night before our, we started our world championship, I had, I had Brock Bradley, uh, give the speech to the team. It was unbelievable. Uh, and, and he's, he's got the history and the knowledge and, uh, to talk uh, to our players about what, it, what it's going to take to be successful at a tournament like that. And um, so I think if, if, as a coach, if you're not using all those resources that you're probably missing some things along the way. I totally agree with that. And I think that from a player's standpoint, like players, you got to listen to that. Like you have this coach talking about how he's talking to all of the staff asking, you know, what do you think of this kid? What's his energy like? All these things. And I always found it interesting, like some of the guys that I played with that didn't treat those kind of people like the way that I thought they should be treated. Like they were just as much a part of the team as the assistant coach, as a head coach, as anyone. Like no one cog in the wheel is more important than the other. Like if you don't have a good trainer who's healing the guys getting hurt, they're not going to come back and play. And what's crazy is a lot of players – they don't really think about, they don't censor themselves in front of those, uh, in front of the trainers, in front of the equipment manager, stuff like that. And for, for the guy, for the players, listening to this, like coaches talk to those guys. They want to get their opinion. They want to get their feedback because those guys on the staff, it's not like they're moles in the locker room. They're not, they're not secret spies or anything, but I know for a fact when I played in the American league that our head coach would ask our, would ask our, uh, our, our athletic trainer, like, was this guy out the night before <laughs> was this, what's going on with this guy? Is he hurt or is he faking? Like, you know, they, they talked to the, to the trainers a lot and the equipment managers and things like that. So, um, they're just as much a part of the team as anyone else. And they know a lot about the players. So coaches, you should be talking to those guys and players make sure you're treating those guys right because they do have an input on your team and how the coach views you as a whole. Yeah, Jeff, you're dead on. They really do. And, and the best ones, like you said, they're not moles. They're not, they're not, they're not com- The best ones know what the coach needs to hear and what they can filter. You know, yep. there's some things that, totally. that they can handle just like assistant coaches. The best assistant coaches know what they need to come to the head coach with and know what they can take care of themselves, you know? Yep. Um, and, and, you know, I think the best trainers and best equipment managers know when to deal with things themselves and know when to, that I need to know that information. Um, and, and I've been fortunate to be around some great ones. But it's funny when you say that, Jeff, because I, my baseball coach, my, one of my baseball coaches in high school, um, when I was committed to Fair State for hockey, he was an old, crusty, you know, baseball coach, hard <laughs> Um, you know, kind of grunted and, you know, gravelly voice at you. And he played, he was a really good player and played a ton of minor baseball, played up to triple a, I loved him and respected him, but, but he was, he was, he was ornery. And, 
And he grabbed me one day. He's like, I don't know much about hockey. He goes, but I know in baseball, you have a clubby, a clubhouse manager. And he said, and if you're good to that person, your life will be a lot easier. And, and it, it, it resonated with me. And I remember it to this day. Um, and that, that's the first thing I did at Ferris. I was like, okay, our, our equipment manager is Ben Muma. Awesome guy. Um, I'm going to make sure I treat him right and be nice to that guy. Um, and, and your life is easier as a player and a coach uh, when you take care of those types of people. That's so true. And that, that just goes along with, you know, a life lesson for any of the kids listening to this too. Like always treat everyone around you the way you want to be treated. And I know that's something you hear in first grade. And maybe as you get older, you look at it like, well, that's like a kid's thing. No, no, it's not. Every, I don't, I can't remember who told me this when I was younger. If I picked it up, I'm sure somebody told me I, I didn't pick it up on my own. They always told me, treat those guys with so much respect because of, for so many reasons, one, they do so many things that go unnoticed by the team, by fans, by everyone, whatever. Um, they're, they're usually underpaid. Uh, so buy those guys lunch every once in a while. I mean, even if you're in juniors and you're not, you're not making any money, like you know, what's a subway sandwich cost five bucks. You bring a subway sandwich to an equipment manager and the athletic trainer once a month, once every few months, they are going to be so happy with the gesture and that you care about them. They're going to take better care of you when you're injured. They're going to, they're going to try harder to rehab you. They're going to care more about sharpening your skates. I mean, I'm sure we've all been in places where uh, the equipment manager gets mad at a guy and will fake sharpen his skates every now and then. <laughs> I've, I've definitely seen it happen. So like you take care of those guys and you're not getting any of that i'll tell you that right now <laughs> no it's absolutely right <laughs> well seth i gotta imagine your support staff um at one point in your career at rpi uh needed to help you out and and i have to ask this question because i think it's hilarious and i want to get your input on it so you're playing in the mayor's cup for people who don't know the mayor's <laughs> cup and i know i think you know what's coming now but mayor's cup's a huge 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 game in albany between union and rpi and uh, there was, uh, I don't know what happened, a little bit of an altercation. Something would happen at the end of the game. And uh, Rick Bennett, who's the head coach at, uh, at Union, who's one of the biggest, probably most intimidating guys that I've ever seen, all of a sudden he is rushing across the, across the ice to the handshakes and he wants a piece of you and I think you wanted a piece of him too so I gotta I gotta ask the question um, and maybe you can answer it uh, maybe a little bit less PC now that you're not coaching in college anymore I don't know but what was going through your mind after that game when when Rick was kind of rushing at you and, and it looked like there might be some fisticuffs between the two of you guys well, let's not kid ourselves. Anytime a guy that size comes at you, you're like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that I wanted to go. Don't worry, don't, not a chance. But, you know, I know Rick. I, I, I have a ton of respect for Rick. He's a great coach. He's an ultimate competitor. Um, and, uh, you know, but you, you knew him as a player, right? He, he, was, he, he fought and he's tough. And, and, and you know when someone's coming to have words with you or they're coming to you know, maybe a little more. Right. And, um, you could see it in his eyes. He was, he was mad. He thought we emptied the bench in a line brawl situation at the end of the game. Uh, and I understand why he thought that later on looking back at it at the time we were just going out to celebrate because we won a huge game. They won the national championship that year. We had a real good team. It was a big win. I think they'd beaten us, you know, six, seven times in a row. Um, it was, it was a big win and we were jumping out to celebrate things happened. We weren't innocent. Uh, either were they. Um, 
you know, and, and sometimes uh, the beauty of hockey, right, is in the, you prefer it not in coaching. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, it's like, right, you prefer it not in coaching. Uh, but the beauty of hockey is like, People are people think it's crazy that I could go have a beer with Rick Bennett after that, or that Rick and I could be friends after that. Like, uh, well, that's that's just our sport um, that doesn't carry over past that moment, um, you know. And and it was something that neither one of us are, are proud of uh, because you want to represent your teams and your universities and your family uh, in a better way than that. <laughs> but um, but at that moment, uh, tensions had escalated and the two teams had a real hatred for each other. And, uh, and it boiled over to the coaching staff in that moment. And, uh, yeah, I needed my, uh, I had my players, they their players. It was, uh, it was an interesting situation. <laughs> and I know Kirk McDonald, uh, Kirk was our volunteer, uh, unbelievable captain for me, played a lot of pro hockey coaches in the East coast league right now. He's doing a great job. Um, and Kirk was only one year removed from playing and, uh, if anybody was gonna gonna go that night, I think it really go. It was gonna be him because he was he was chomping at the bit uh, as <laughs> as a as a player that's only about six months removed from being a hard nosed uh, tough American League player. So uh, that was an interesting moment. I remember just walking back in the coaching room afterwards and being like, "What in the heck just happened out there?" <laughs> you know, uh, but. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was something. We, I, we we like Rick and I like to say that we were just trying to sell tickets to make sure that event was a success. <laughs> well, I'm sure it did. But I remember, I'm sure everybody else in the coaching world. I remember watching that video and being like, "Oh my god!" Like that look that was in Rick's eyes. It was like, you don't want to be on the other end of that. <laughs> That's not a place you want to well, be. Coop, so, Coop, uh, John Cooper, Tampa Bay coach, a buddy of mine, and. He left me a message at like three in the morning that night. I think he was flying somewhere to somebody, but this was in Canada. He was, you know, getting into a new city in the NHL schedule. And, and I got a message from him the next morning. He's like three in. He's like, my God, apps. He's like, I just turned on TSN and there's some big dude chasing you around the ice. <laughs> he's like, what, what? He's like, what happened? You know? And, uh, so yeah, that was, uh, that was interesting uh, to say the least. And uh, we get a kick out of it now. That's unreal. That's unreal. Well, we don't have too much more time, but you know, obviously, right now you're you're coaching at uh, the NTDP, um, and and you know, one of the things that's that's really really cool about the NTDP is you're legitimately coaching the the best players in the country at such a such a huge age for them. You know, they're kind of just starting to learn who they are. They're just starting to come into their own, and now all of a sudden they're thrown into you know, a, a new city playing for a new coach and, and just going through an absolute grind of junior hockey. Um, what have you learned about coaching kids at that age um, in your couple years that you've coached at that program? Well, it's, it's a, it's an incredible coaching experience. I've said this year, like I did the 18s last year, the 17s this year. So every coach, you want to be a great coach. You should coach a U 17 season uh, because it is amazing how much you have to coach. I probably learned more this year coaching than I have in 10 years. Uh, you probably do 10 times more coaching than you ever have had to. Cause all these players as talented as they are, uh, they're coming from all over the country. They're away from home for the first time. They're living in somebody else's house. There's no veterans on our team to take care of them. There's no 20 year old vet, uh, to tell them the way that's going to be. They're all 16 year old rookies and, and they're all the best players, in their state, usually not just on their team that they're coming from. Um, 
And so, like, the first game this year, I, we were playing a, in Johnstown in the North American League in an exhibition game, and I looked over at Nick Four, who's been here eight years, and I lean on him a ton because uh, of the experience he has here. He's a great coach, great person. And I looked over at Forzy, and I was like, is this normal? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was the worst hockey I'd ever seen. Um, and, I, and I think we had to show him 40 clips the next day of how playing one-on-one hockey doesn't work anymore at this level. <laughs> and, and, and you have to play give and go and move the puck. And um, so it's crazy that, that the, just the amount of things you have to coach in the U 17 year uh, and you're teaching them about uh, trying to learn what it's going to take to be successful at higher levels of hockey. You're doing it while usually getting your teeth smashed in, in the USHL because in the 17 year, like my, my 2000s that I inherited after their 17 year, they went four wins, 28 losses in one time in the USHL that year. Wow. I mean, so you think about the adversity, the best thing we do, and I believe in this program, I believe in how we practice and how we train, the weight room time and all that stuff. And I think that the players we've produced are, are show that that's accurate. But the best thing we do here is we put our players in an incredible amount of adversity and we try to get them to help understand how they need to navigate through that. Um, Cause adversity, as we talked about earlier, it makes you stronger uh, and it makes you look inside yourself. And there's moments in the 17 year that every player with the exception of the few, few special ones that have come to here, every players has those breaking moments of man, I'm used to scoring three points a game and I haven't had a point in three weeks and I can barely touch the puck in a USHL game right now. Um, and they have adversity in practice because every player in their team is a national caliber player now, not just two or three guys on a team. And so uh, that, that's, the, that's the best thing we do here is, is that day-to-day grind and day-to-day adversity that they have to face. And if they want to go through the motions in practice, their, their teammates are going to embarrass them with their work ethic and their own competitiveness. So um, that's probably the biggest thing here. Uh, it's, it's a, you know, you're, you're constantly trying to show them what it's going to take for them to become elite players, not just good players, but elite players for our country and to play in the national hockey league. Um, and so you're trying to use those, any lessons you can along the way uh, to be able to do that. Uh, the beauty here is we can be development focused. Uh, we practice for an hour and a half to two hours every day. Um, if they're a little tired on Friday or Saturday, we're going to live with that uh, because we're going to spend the time on skill development and training um, more than just on um, just on worrying about winning on Friday and Saturday night. I wish I could just play the last three minutes of my life on a loop over and over and drive around in one of those cars from back to the future that like (laughs) is yelling things really loud. I would just want to play that over and over apps. That was, that is so everything Toph and I are about, about youth hockey as well. Development, you know, working through adversity. Adversity is a good thing. You don't all need to go and make super teams and just be the best team beating teams, 12, nothing. That's not going to make the individuals better from that winning isn't everything uh i just i i would like everyone who's listening just rewind like a minute and a half and listen to what apps just said like five times in a row and sink that into your skulls (laughs) 
Well, Please. do you see that? Like you're you're a part of the process now of, of of even picking those teams. And I coached, you know, when you said, um, you know, coaching at the U17 level, you know, was a huge learning experience. I agree. I coached U16 this year, and my eyes got opened so much as to you know, what it was all about and how much coaching you need to do and, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, now that you're at the national program, you know, you, you get a little bit more of a glimpse into the youth hockey world. Um, what do you kind of see that's going on right now? Maybe that might filter up to you because a lot of people, they get absolutely crazy, even for the, the 40 man tryout. It's not 40 anymore, but you know what I mean? Like where do you see kind of where youth hockey is at in the States? And, and, uh, if there's anything that you would maybe give some advice to some parents as, you know, the national team development head coach, the head of that whole thing, uh, what kind of advice would you give them? Well, I think overall, hockey in our country is in a really good place. And, and I really firmly believe uh, in, in, in the job that the major, great majority of youth hockey coaches around our country are doing. Yeah. Uh, I believe in, I believe in what the ADM, uh, the American development model, and what USA hockey in Colorado Springs is, is, is pumping out and how they're supposed to practice and train and do all those things. So I think overall it's in great shape. Yeah. Do, are some coaches and some, some parents uh, get crazy and way too much for sure, you know? Um, but you understand it as well. Like they're, they're worried about their son uh, or daughter uh, getting, getting left behind. Right. And, and that's always the fear. And I think that the, uh, the, the people in youth hockey that are trying to make money more than just trying to develop, put, they prey on that fear. You know, they prey on that fear of the parents, uh, that their that their kids going to get left behind, um, but I think the, the most important thing, right, is, is that you're not trying to play hockey. You shouldn't start your kid in hockey, and kids shouldn't play hockey to try to make it to the NHL or to try to get a Division One scholarship. They should play hockey because it's fun. They should play hockey because they love the sport. Uh, they're going to learn life lessons through the sport. Uh, they're going to meet some of their best friends through the sport. Um, they're, they're going to go hopefully, you know, if, if, and if, you know, hopefully get to play in high school or for a great midget program, you know, through the sport. And if, if you play in college or past that, you know, that, that's a, that's a cherry on top. Now it's different here. These kids are elites, you know, at the age they're at. And, and so, yeah, we're focused on trying to get them to the NHL, but man, like through the ages of, of six or five through, you know, 12, 13, 14, uh, the focus should be on playing multiple sports, having fun, uh, loving showing up at the rink every day, playing for coaches that you respect as people and coaches. And um, I think those things are, are massively important. And I think that if you do that and you, and you can find your passion and love for the game and your talent matches it, then you get a little older and then your work ethic and your drive can match that passion, love, and talent, then you have a chance to be something. But, but that's so far off for most of the youth hockey players. Just, just worry about being a great teammate. Like I tell my daughters before they go to soccer games, have fun, be a great teammate, and compete your tail off. Like that, those are the three things I tell them. We don't, we don't go into anything else. I don't try to coach them and do all those things. I, I want those three things to – be what their, their youth sports experience is about. Have fun, be great teammates, and compete your tail off. And if you do that, usually things are going to work out pretty good for you. 
Yeah, for sure. And I always felt like the best players that I was able to play with and coach, they just had that passion, you know, just that, that like inner drive in them that just, they, they just loved to play hockey. And, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you, cause you get the chance to, to coach some unbelievably skilled and talented players. And, you know, I know they weren't on your primary team, uh, but you got the chance to coach kids like, like Jack Hughes and, and Cole Caulfield, um, and, and other unbelievable talents there. You know, what's it like to, to coach that caliber of a player? Um, you know, specifically like a Jack Hughes, that's going to go number one overall in the draft next year at, at 17 years old. Yeah. Jack Hughes is awesome to coach. I had him from January one on last year. Um, he wants to get better. He's coachable. He he'll come in and watch video with you and, and try to apply what you're showing him uh, to his game. He, he, he lives it uh, every day. You can't, you can't get him off the ice. He's going to stay out there and work on his game. Honestly, with purpose until you, the Zamboni doors open. And then after that, he's going to go in the shooting room and spend another hour in there. Um, he's going to watch games at night and he's not watching games as a fan. He's watching games to, to learn how to do this thing or that thing from other NHL players. Those players, they're constantly soaking up uh, the knowledge and the training that they need to become special players. Uh, and, and there's a lot of players here like Jack uh, and, and Jack just happens to be the best of them. Uh, but um, you know, but, but that's Jack. I mean, his passion for the game is, it just burns at an incredible level. Um, if we're playing a small ice game in practice, he's going to try to cut your arm off to win that game. You know, and he, his competitiveness might not be as physical. Like when you think competitiveness, you think physical competitiveness and hitting people his competitiveness is winning and scoring, right? And um, so it's different, but you play a small ice game, he, he, he's playing for blood, and he wants to win. He doesn't care if it's Tuesday afternoon at 3 o'clock. And if he loses, he is pissed, and he wants to play again. And that's, that's what drives those special players, um, is it's not just good enough to be pretty good. They want to be the best every day at everything they're doing. Uh, and they have an incredible passion and drive and love for the game uh, that fuels that. Because if you don't love it, it's too hard. Like this place is, this place is miserably hard. Like again, moving away from home, they get up at six thirty, they go to school till noon, they come here, they're here from about noon to five, two hours of practice, going against the best players in the country, being pushed, going in the weight room for an hour, expected to be in the shooting room after that getting their teeth kicked in and you tough USHL games. Cause the USHL is such a great league. The next year, getting your teeth kicked in in college games, this place is miserably hard. And if you don't love it, uh, you're not going to, you're not going to succeed here. That's awesome. Yeah. Yep. I love that. Well, we've had you on here for, for quite some time, Jeff, you got any last questions you want to ask Seth before we let him go? Can I come play for NTDP even though I'm 33? <laughs> Jeff, you were you were you were a pretty darn good player. I remember you put up a lot of points at uh, Omaha and at Western Michigan. So I uh, maybe we, we'll see if we can open up a spot. Thirty-three <laughs> year old retired guy with tats and no teeth. What's up? <laughs> yeah, that works. I like it. That's awesome. For, for me, guys, first of all, like I really appreciate you having me on. You guys do a great job. Uh, appreciate your commitment towards uh towards the hockey culture and the youth hockey developments and and uh 
I think though, for me, the last thing I just want to add is, is, is that we've talked a lot about my journey and the coaches I've got to coach. Um, the players I've been fortunate enough to coach uh, have made it all the best, you know, and, and like I said, going to their weddings, getting calls when they're playing their first NHL game, you know, without players like uh, Ryan Caldwell and Matt Carl and Adam Burkle and Connor James and Paul Stasny and, and so many at Denver and the Chase Palachek's and Alan York's and, um, you know, and, and Ryan Haggerty's and Nick Balins and all these guys at RPI and, and the guys I've been fortunate to coach here, you know, they make it special. Uh, the, the attitude and the work ethic and the commitment the players show up with every day, um, you know, they, they make it special. And, and I've been really fortunate uh, to coach some great human beings and some great players. Yep, absolutely. Well, one other guy that's a, that's a special human being who I want to give a shout-out to right now, guy that, uh, that you coach with at RPI, Nolan Graham, um, going through a tough time with a traumatic brain injury, got hit by a car, um, but one of the best guys in the business. Um, you know, is, what was Nolan like to coach with? And, uh, you know, obviously we wish him well and, and want him to, to, you know, get a full and speedy recovery here. But talk for a little bit just about Nolan and, and uh, how great of a guy he is too. Oh, he's the best. He, uh, man, what a competitor! What a what a what a savage worker! Never <laughs> um, really like that. I mean, you know, talking about you know, ultra marathons and fifty mile runs, and um, oh, yeah. you just, you know, he just set such a good example uh, for our for our young men about how to live your life and how to love the program and how to treat other human beings and. Uh, the kind of family man uh, you should be, uh, the kind of work you want to really honest work you want to put in if you want to be uh, exceptional uh, at anything in your life. And uh, he was, you know, he was fantastic to work with. Um, he, he, every, anything he, he's in, he's all in. Uh, he's going to give you every ounce of, of passion and competitiveness and, and, uh, and work that he has in him, and, and uh, anytime you get the opportunity to be around and work with or coach guys like that, uh, it's going to make your life better. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly, you know, the adversity he's going through, um, you know, and, and fortunately he's as tough as he is because a lot of people this would have broken, uh, and it won't with him, and, and certainly with the love of his uh, beautiful wife and beautiful young daughter. Yep, absolutely. He's one of the best, and uh, you are too. Thank you so much for taking the time to to come out, and uh, I'm sure Nolan is going to listen to this, knowing that you're coming on, so obviously wish him well too. But, uh, you know, congrats on uh, on all you've achieved in in your coaching career, and uh, just make sure you keep it easy on those refs. We don't need you for any more 10-minute misconducts and somebody else has to coach (laughs) the game, you know. (laughs) I'll certainly try. (laughs) All right, sounds good. Thanks, Seth. Thanks a lot. Take care.